you so much for agreeing to talk to us today. Where are you? I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, cool. Well, actually out in Gippsland, I should say, but yeah. I'm in Sydney. Awesome. <laughs> well, Bill, I had a chance to sit down and and watch the film, and I've got to say, this is an absolutely fascinating film for lovers of Australian cinema, and I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about how the film came about being made in the first place. Well, I came... Uh, I've been here 40 years, right? In 79, I came down here with my first feature script, I wanted to do a film called Philip and Benny Long, which I wrote from London. And um, I wanted to make a film about First Contact because I had done a lot of uh, work in, still work in the Amazon and Borneo and New Guinea. Then I went into, after film school, I went in to make docos, which I sold on to the BBC. And I, I just got uh, sort of tired of docos and that First Contact situation. Uh, you know, acculturation, one culture on top of another. And I wanted to create a feature film, and I found the, the Benny Long story, and it, uh, it was just the best research story of, of, of a lot. And there were seven diaries running at that time. Everyone wanted to run a diary. In fact, uh, in 1979, I was researching it from London, and of course, Australia wasn't a big word at that time. People didn't even know where it was or... And uh, I, like, I went to the library looking for a book called Sydney First Four Years, and the librarian came back after half an hour and said she'd been all through the child-rearing section and can't find it anywhere. So, you know, that's how much people knew about Benny Long and Philip and Sydney. And, and uh, so I came down here to make that film. And, uh, and then I fell in love with Australia. But in making that, yeah, we didn't get it up. I saw the, the option to McElroy's, but it was just too expensive couldn't make you know Sydney town and all those the first fleet and all that at that time was just too costly. but I met Benny long at the, I bet uh, I bet uh, Gopal at times uh, he was going to be the obvious Benny long and uh, you know the story Benny long do you yes yep yep yeah okay so um, so anyway we got to uh, uh, know each other and he told me about the story he had called Billy West and I said, let's do something about it. And uh, I took took the opportunity also to uh, go back to the BBC where I had a lot of done a lot of work while I was in London because I stayed in London 10 years after after film school. And uh, I went back to them. I said, how about making a film about David? So uh, I made it, you know, we had a co-pro with them and uh, and I just followed him to L.A. mainly because he was going over there to do a thing uh, for for uh, a film called The Right Stuff. He was doing a sequence for them. You know The Right Stuff? You remember that film? Yes, yeah. Actually, I've been trying... I know about the film. I haven't seen it, but I'm trying to hunt it down at the moment. Yeah, it's a film about the first astronauts. And Anyway, there's just a tiny little scene in, in the desert where the Aborigines are all sitting around watching the... the, the thing across the sky and uh and of course they couldn't afford they didn't want to send a crew down here and work with real average so they sent david up there and uh used some american negroes to do it um, and yeah so david got paid well and he had a bit of money so you know we went around la and uh, and then came back and i went up to arnhem land with him and um 
you know, so then we had the, uh, you know, we had the basis of a, of a film, and uh, then I did a lot of research about Aboriginals in film, and uh, you know, realized that, and, you know, he was the very first. He was the very first who went on, you know, was the first unblacked white man, really. Up to that time, everyone else blacked themselves up, except except for, um, um, what's the main one that was shot in the 50s? Uh, Jeddah. Jeddah. You know, Jeddah was the very first film. Uh, and then David came along and made Walkabout. And then by the time I took him to L.A., he had four films in Los Angeles playing. People recognized him in the streets. People would stop and get his autograph. And, uh, yeah, he was very, very popular. You mentioned before that in um, England that Australian cinema wasn't uh, very big. Did they know about Walkabout in England at that time as well, or was the popularity of Walkabout more in America? No, Walkabout was an English film. It was made by Nicholas Rogue, who was an Englishman. And he used his son in there, and uh, Jenny Agatha. They're all English, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, it's an English film, but uh, it had a, a good, strong following. It became a cult film all around around the world. It wasn't a, you know, a box office hit, but it was a good uh, art house film. You know, at that time, art house cinema was pretty big everywhere, so it had a good run, definitely. Uh, so everybody uh, knew who David was. It was, you know, it, was, it had a big following. But also he had uh, a Richard Chamberlain film, uh, The Last Wave. He had a Dennis Hopper film, Mad Dog Morgan, and Americans knew him through Dennis Hopper film. And uh, and then he had Storm Boy. Yeah, and, you know, these were four big films playing there. And so he was, girls would steal him. I mean, I, we stayed in two different hotel rooms in the hotel, and the girls would just come knock on his door, and I'd go to find him. They'd you know, be a note there to say, we've taken David away for the day. We'll see you this evening. <laughs> so, yeah, no, he was uh, he was incredibly popular. And, but you know, he was familiar with, with uh, traveling in the outside world by that time. You know, he'd been, he'd been everywhere. He'd been to New York and London and Paris and... Uh, you know, but they were all, all, always short hauls, and he was on a, you know, always on a, a quick trip. But this time he, we had a bit of time to play around and introduce him to the American Indians. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to meet the, the, the American blacks. You know, being black, he wanted to meet with blacks. But very early on, he realized that he didn't really have any uh, relationship with them. There was no real connection. They were just black Americans, as far as he was concerned. They had the same cap needs and desires. They didn't care about the land or Mother Earth or any of that. As soon as he connected with the American Indians, that, that, was, he, he, that, that was his soul. They were his soulmates. So he went around to a couple of reservations. And he performed for them and uh, they talked to him about land rights and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so he became a little more political in that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had a lot to say to them as well. But he was raw, you know, he was, he was like now, these are city Indians living out outside LA and that sort of thing. And uh, he was, you know, like he could perform and they were just blown away. You know, he played the didgeridoo and stamp in the dust around the campfire we had and they would just blow him away. Yeah, so he, he worked in, you know, he could, he could, uh, we did a good morning, a good morning uh, Los Angeles at seven o'clock in the morning and, uh, we had uh, drinks with Muhammad Ali, 
night before, you know, so he could play with the big boys, but he could also play with the Indians. He's, he's, he's still like that. He can still run with uh, both worlds. Yeah. What was David's first reaction when you mentioned the documentary to him and said that you wanted to make a documentary about him, but also about his journey to America? Well, he was keen because we both wanted to get Billy West up. We were going to make that together. So it was a way to uh, promote Billy West and to find one of the reasons we were in L.A. was to find American Indians to run with us. We got St. Marie to play the leading lady. We got Max Gale to play the leading man. So we got to meet those Hollywood people as well. We got to see Clint Eastwood. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he was keen. You know, he, he was keen. I mean, he loves being in front of camera. He loves cameras. He loves, uh, he loves film. You know, he's a real filmmaker. Uh, he would have been a great, this would have been a great thing for him to do to actually co-direct this thing. Uh, you know, we got caught in the, we got caught in the 10BA thing, uh, the first 10BA, and we got, uh, yeah, we just didn't get it up. Yeah. By that time, oh, we had built bets. In those days, you could, you could spend the money as you raised it. Nowadays, you know, they changed all the rules. You have to have all your money in the bank in escrow before you can spend the first penny. But we spent pennies as the money was coming in from investors. We built sets up there and we uh, hired, hired cattle and, uh, and uh, brought on extras and started training extras and that sort of thing. Uh, but then uh, 10BA didn't come through and we didn't finish. And so we lost a lot of money on that, yeah. And we never got around to do it again because the fires came through, as they do every year up there, burnt all sets, all the cattle went back, and, uh, you know, everyone lost interest, really. We never could get it back up again. Yeah. Being a fan of both of them, I have to ask, what was the meeting like between Clint Eastwood and David? That must have been something special. Oh, they they loved him. They thought he was fantastic. Um, You know, he was... He was strange. You know, these, these guys have never really met anybody like that. And, you know, they're quite intelligent guys. But, you know, they, they've worked with a lot of people. They've never really worked with uh, anything as quite, quite as tribal as David. Uh, and, you know, even though he looked quite smart, he always looks good. He has a real dress, great dress sense. And at that time, it was the John Travolta, Urban Cowboy, was the big was a big thing at that time, and um, he went with his money that he made from right stuff. He bought a hat and Levi's and a couple pairs of boots and quite a few cowboy shirts and cowboy belts and all that. And uh, you know, so he always looked smart, and he stood out. You know, he stood out and uh, looked smart, but he could uh, you know rise to any occasion. Bill, up to five beers. Yeah, Bill, I know we are running out of time very quickly, but I wanted to ask before I went, what was your first impression of Arnhem Land? Because, of course, a lot of this documentary also follows David in his home state. So what was your first impressions as an Englishman of Arnhem Land? Well, it's uh, I'm an American, actually, but um, I went to film school in London. I married an English lady, and now I'm Australian. But I, I was... Uh, uh, educated in California, but um, um, yeah, going to Arnhem Land was was uh, was quite a, was quite a um, an eye opener. It's quite a, an eye opener. We went all the way out to David's. By the time that we got out there. 
to his place as far out as he lives on a place called Gupalo, which is which is a tiny little peninsula on the peninsula, you know, way out there. And it was just his mother and a couple of houses, huts, really, huts. And, uh, you know, it was so, so remote. I remember one night swatting the mosquitoes and she just took a big stick out of the fire and just walked around and started a fire, about 50 acres of fire, just to be a mozzie repellent to keep the mozzies off of me. She says, here, sit down wind. You know, that sort of, it was wild. And David, David just had a few things in the, one of the huts. He had a, uh, an handwritten script of the last wave signed by Richard Chamberlain. He had uh, a couple of photos of him and Peter Weir. Um, you know, and, and that was it. That was his possession. By the time we got back from the States, all of that, he only had one pair of boots and one pair of Levi's. He'd given everything away. He gave his hat away. He gave uh, another pair of boots away. Even his car got bogged in the, uh, you know, he had a Land Rover that he bought that McElroy's gave to him, and that was bogged. And, uh, you know, so we, we literally walked into his place the last couple of miles to his place and his Land Rover stayed in that river until the end of that wet season where they could get it out again. Oh, you know, that's how he went back to Arnhem Land, back to real earth, really just with one pair of boots, a pair of Levi's. Wow. Well, Bill, it has been absolutely fascinating chatting to you, and I could chat to you all day about Australian cinema, but I know we are right out of time. But I just want to say it's been an absolute privilege chatting to you. And um, I hope a lot of our listeners go out and grab a copy of this documentary because it is absolutely brilliant. Where, 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 when is this going to air? Uh, this will go to 